Your friends from college are asking you how to buy Bitcoin. Your mom is emailing you articles about the benefits of decentralized peer-to-peer networks. Your shoeshiner is telling you to buy XRP and NEO and Tron. It's 2018, and cryptocurrencies have become a daily part of news headlines. The general public may not understand how this technology works, but everyone knows that changes are on the horizon. At some point in the future, our financial and computing systems will be deeply integrated with the crypto economy. We all remember the dot-com boom. We know that some people got fantastically rich during that period through speculation, and we think maybe this is our chance to make a bunch of money. If you read Reddit or almost any news site, you will see stories of obscene wealth intertwined with pseudoscientific discussions of how a new cryptocurrency is going to change the world. What is fact and what is fiction? How far are we from a beautiful future with frictionless micropayments and self-driving cars that are paying for themselves? Matt Lysing is a journalist at Bloomberg who has covered financial markets for 15 years. Today, his reporting has been completely engulfed by cryptocurrencies. There are so many dramatic stories, it's hard to pick what to focus on. Today, we discuss two topics that he has covered recently, Ripple and Tether. Ripple is a company that makes enterprise blockchain solutions for global payments. That sounds like the future. And it's no surprise that people would want to buy into Ripple if possible. Ripple has been around for seven years, and they have a strong team and relationships with major financial institutions. One of Ripple's early projects was a currency called XRP. The goal of XRP was to make a fast, scalable digital asset that would be facilitation for currency exchange among banks. We covered Ripple and XRP in previous episodes with David Schwartz and Greg Kidd, who have both been involved with Ripple, the company. XRP remains in circulation, but Ripple, the company, has shifted development resources away from XRP and towards RippleNet, which seeks to replace the aging Swift code system for banks. Today, XRP is being experimented with by several money transfer companies, But the digital currency itself is not widely used for anything. Well, other than speculation. In the tremendous crypto coin bull run of early 2018, XRP shot up as sharply as almost any other coin. In an article about Ripple, Matt Lysing tried to get to the root of the explanation for why this occurred. Was it a sudden market recognition of some long-term value of XRP? Was it a stampeding herd of people who did not know the state of XRP, and then they were just having FOMO from the other people who were putting money into XRP, and you just have classic herd mentality? Was it a pump and dump that was orchestrated by people who recognized that people might be subject to buying into some story of XRP? A few days after publishing his article about Ripple, Matt wrote another story about Tether. Tether is totally unrelated to Ripple, except that it's another story of crypto insanity. 
Tether purports to be a stablecoin, which is a digital currency that is pegged to the value of something less volatile, because cryptocurrencies have a lot of volatility, and typically in your currency, you don't want a lot of volatility, because you want to know that if I'm going to have to go to the store to buy milk tomorrow... I don't want to have to plan my day around the times in the day when my dollar is worth more so that my milk is essentially cheaper. Stable coins are useful in that they can reduce friction of exchange between tokens. So without a stable coin, you might have to transfer from one cryptocurrency to USD, which probably involves the US banking system. There's a good discussion of stablecoins in our previous episode with Vlad Zamfir and Hasib Qureshi on crypto economics. You can find the links to those in the show notes for this episode. And if you can use Tether instead of USD, if you're a trader, you have less transactional friction. You might be able to escape the onerous tax consequences of day trading cryptocurrencies also. Tether claims to have $1 USD in reserve for every one Tether in circulation. So if you wanted to cash out Tether for USD, you should theoretically be able to do that because Tether says, okay, we've got one USD for every Tether in circulation. You should be able to go to the Tether repository and take out USD. Except that Tether seems to have no connection to any US banks. And Tether has severed its ties with auditing agencies that it was working with, these auditing agencies that wanted to, well, Tether had initialized relationships with auditing agencies that were going to verify that Tether was legitimately doing business, and Tether severed the ties with those auditing agencies. So it's a little bit suspicious. There's $2.3 billion worth of Tether in circulation. And that's a small fraction of the overall trading volume of cryptocurrencies. But it's unknown how much the current crypto bubble is propped up by the functionality of Tether. The ability to seamlessly move between cryptocurrencies without going into USD. As long as the market believes in Tether... And today, the market does indeed believe in Tether. It's valued at $0.999014 per Tether. So it, you know, the market only disbelieves in Tether to the degree of a fraction of a cent. And this stablecoin mystique is going to persist as long as that, that valuation of a dollar per Tether persists. And so the market frictions are going to continue to be smoothed out by that belief. So it's an open question as to what degree Tether really is propping up the market and reducing friction. This was Matt Lysing's second appearance on the show, and it was a blast to have him back on. I love talking to him. In his last episode, he discussed the infamous DAO hack, which led to an Ethereum fork. And if you want to find that episode, as well as links to learn more about the topics described in the show... You can download the Software Engineering Daily app for iOS or Android. These apps have all 650 of our episodes in a searchable format. We have recommendations and categories and related links, discussions around the episodes. You can find all of our blockchain-related episodes. It's all free. It's also open source. If you're interested in getting involved in our open source community, 
We have lots of people that are working on the project, and we do our best to be friendly and inviting to new people coming in looking for their first open source project. And you can find that project at github.com slash softwareengineeringdaily. We've got lots of stuff to work on, so if you're interested in getting involved, please check it out. And with that, let's get to this episode. DigitalOcean is a reliable, easy-to-use cloud provider. I've used DigitalOcean for years, whenever I want to get an application off the ground quickly. And I've always loved the focus on user experience, the great documentation, and the simple user interface. More and more people are finding out about DigitalOcean and realizing that DigitalOcean is perfect for their application workloads. This year, DigitalOcean is making that even easier with new node types. A $15 flexible droplet that can mix and match different configurations of CPU and RAM to get the perfect amount of resources for your application. There are also CPU-optimized droplets, perfect for highly active front-end servers or CI-CD workloads. And running on the cloud can get expensive, which is why DigitalOcean makes it easy to choose the right size instance. And the prices on standard instances have gone down too. You can check out all their new deals by going to do.co slash sedaily. And as a bonus to our listeners, you will get $100 in credit to use over 60 days. That's a lot of money to experiment with. You can make $100 go pretty far on DigitalOcean. You can use the credit for hosting or infrastructure, and that includes load balancers, object storage. DigitalOcean Spaces is a great new product that provides object storage. And, of course, computation. Get your free $100 credit at do.co slash sedaily. And thanks to DigitalOcean for being a sponsor. The co-founder of DigitalOcean, Moisey Uretsky, was one of the first people I interviewed, and his interview was really inspirational for me, so I've always thought of DigitalOcean as a pretty inspirational company. So thank you, DigitalOcean. Matt Lysing, you are a reporter at Bloomberg. You were previously on the show to talk about the DAO hack. Thanks for coming back on Software Engineering Daily. Oh, you're welcome. It's great to be here, Jeff. Thanks. We're in the midst of some crazy, bubbly times, and you're one of the few people who's very capable of reporting on blockchain-related stories, cryptocurrency-related stories. How are you choosing what stories to write about today when, when there's so much that you can choose from? Yeah, that's my dilemma. I liken it to drinking from a fire hose. There's different layers, I think, of the reporting and, and the stories and their seriousness. You know, there's always like, I don't know, a, a Kodak coin story out there that sort of seems just, where does this come from? Or some of the stories about stocks that are changing their names to reflect some kind of blockchain play, and then they go up, you know, 300%. Those are good stories. And we cover those stories, but I, I try to, to dig in a little bit deeper and use the sources I've built up over, you know, 15 years of writing about the financial market to kind of get a little bit deeper. And maybe at this point in the cycle here in, in blockchain to kind of 
take the temperature and hold some some of these companies accountable for the promises that they're making. That's sort of always been my preferred way of doing my job. Yeah, well, the shoe is going to drop eventually on some of the companies that you're talking about. The and once the public really starts to get hammered financially, like I, I went home to Austin. I'm from Austin originally for a wedding recently, and I was catching up with some friends. And we spent the whole time talking about cryptocurrency speculation, and my friends are computer science people, but we didn't talk about the engineering. We didn't talk about the technical internals. We just talked about speculation, and if I'm talking about speculation with my, even with my technical friends, the, the even the less technical people, the discussion of speculation is even more acute and it's it's concerning. I mean, it's inspiring, but it's also concerning. Have you seen this obsession with with speculation, the shoe shiners? Has it seized your friends and family as well? Yeah, it has absolutely. I can't go to a party or even to a bar where I'm just you know not trying to bring it up, and it will come up all over. Hear people talking, or somebody will ask me about it, and then they find out what I do, and and then you know the horse is out of the barn. And I, I try to explain to them how things work and, and the different aspects to it all. You know, like an ICO is risky. Bitcoin is, you know, here to stay. And it, it's amazing to me how often the people who have money in this market just don't really understand any of the underlying technology. And uh, I think they're just seeing these incredible gains. And yeah, it is scary. And part of what we try to do at Bloomberg is just put out balanced, good reporting on this so people can make their own decisions. I feel like there is going to be a reckoning when a lot of the ICO craze, you know, starts to go down in flames. And that's that's troubling. The reaction I get on Twitter to my stories makes me feel like these people have a lot of money at stake and they, they're taking it out on me when I report on things that they don't want to hear. So it, it seems like that's that's a concern. It's like religious fervor. Absolutely. Yes. It is very much a religious sort of tinged moment right now. I went to a, a meetup in Santa Monica a couple months ago where Roger Ver spoke about Bitcoin Cash. And that was immediately what I, I when I wrote it up, I compared it to a, a sort of like a tent revival. It was in a backyard and people were just in awe of him and, and this new, you know, thing that you know, was something that they could invest and they could make, you know, 10 times the amount of money that they've put in in a matter of weeks. And it just, it's, it's kind of astounding. I remember this documentary I saw about the 1920s stock market run up and crash. And there was, (laughs) I think it's on Netflix. It was really good. I don't remember the title of it, maybe the great crash or something, but there's like, this always happens in these kinds of run-ups. There, I remember there was this, there was like a fortune teller in the 1920s and she was like <laughs> writing a newsletter. She had like a fortune teller newsletter and was like, these are the stocks that my premonitions have informed me are going to rise. And of course, she had a following and the following would bid those things up and not much has changed in a hundred years. No, I, I agree. And even a casual uh, observer of, of something like Twitter in the cryptocurrency space will see this every day, every minute of every day. People are pumping things, you know, and it's just with 
I don't know. It's it's hard to wrap your head around, but just the sheer sort of psychological delusions that are going on in, in a lot of these markets, and and it's just it's you know it's there for all of us to see, and just the fact that it, it seems to me a lot of these these coins and, and Bitcoin and Ether and all the others seem to go up and down in tandem, which is is you know kind of should be a warning sign that that something if this is a diverse area, you know, you wouldn't expect to see that. I find it hard. Like I try to, I really try to steel myself psychologically against these more basal human tendencies of falling victim to the greater fool theory. But my, when I was back in Austin um, and I was just talking to my friends and everybody's foaming at the mouth about what cryptocurrencies they should buy or what people are talking about on Reddit, my friend showed me his mobile wallet and he showed me some 82x gains on something called Ryblox. I had wow. never heard of it. And you know, I've tried to follow this space pretty closely and I I saw those gains and I was like maybe I should be doing this. Maybe you know, as insane as it is, maybe I should be getting in on the pump and dump roller coaster. You know, you could take $2000 you treat it like you're throwing money into penny stocks. You get in on the pump and dump Telegram chat rooms. You see if you can get a hundred x. How do you avoid f- like falling into that temptation? Is that tempting to you at all, or or is it is it just not hard for you to 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 steal yourself against it? No, I have to steal myself against it. I'm not not allowed to invest in any of this stuff. Uh, it's against mm. the rules, uh, the ethics rules we have at Bloomberg News. It's also just good reporting sense to not. You know, if I covered Microsoft, I wouldn't be allowed to own Microsoft shares because you would then have a good case to say that, oh, I've got a bias to the upside and I'm only going to try to report positive things about Microsoft. And as a reporter, you can't do that. You have to just go out and find the story and no matter what it is, make sure it's accurate and get it out to your readers. And so I think that's what I, you know, I get accused of that a lot on Twitter of, of oh, you must have a position in something or you want xrp to fail because it's going to make you money in some other coin and i just it's it's almost impossible to try to stem that tide of criticism because it's just it's just not true so you You can't even own bitcoin or ethereum correct i have experimented with ethereum because i cover it and so i've i've wanted you know i've i've checked out metamask and i've bought a record on uh, the Ethereum blockchain because, you know, that's the thing that people are talking about, these new digital apps. So just to know the beat, you know, but I know I, I'm not allowed to invest or, or hold this stuff as, as some sort of, you know, portfolio. Yeah. Yeah. I, I want to get into talking about XRP and eventually we'll talk about Tether a little bit, but a little more on the state of the union these pump and dumps are kind of crazy. Like the you, the Telegram chat rooms where people are pumping and doing this orchestrated pumping and dumping. What have you heard about this stuff? Like are the blockchain pump and dumps, is this stuff any different than what goes on with penny stocks or biotech? Is this unprecedented? I don't think so. I would say that at this point, you you know, the SEC has started to dip its toe in and they are getting more serious about this. And I think there's still the gray area of whether these coins constitute securities. You know, they, they put it through the Howey test to try to figure out 
okay, is this a security or is this a utility token? And if it's a security, okay, you have to abide by the rules of the SEC as long as you're, you know, in the U.S. So I think that's got to be a challenge for the SEC and other regulators. I know for a fact that they've already taken action against certain companies who have, you know, tried to exploit the blockchain for in the penny stock area, for example, and other just egregious sort of Ponzi schemes uh, dressed up as an ICO. They just issued a temporary restraining order against a, a big coin the other day. It was $600 million. It was out of Texas. That's the biggest action they've taken uh, in that market. So then, of course, we'll get to the CFTC action with Tether. Mm-hmm. So as you know, and, and your listeners know, this moves at lightning pace. It's just so fast. But I, I do think the regulators understand that and they know that they have to move a lot faster than they might have had to do in the past. Yeah. So I think it'd be more interesting for us to talk about Ripple now because this is this actually has an air of legitimacy. I mean, Ripple, the company, I've, I've done a couple shows about it and there's legitimate technologists at this company. So Ripple is, it's been around for seven years, Let's let's talk about Ripple and the currency that they have XRP. So give a little bit bit of backstory on on Ripple, the company, because you wrote this article about Ripple. I'll put it in the show notes. It's a really good explanation of sort of what Ripple, the company, is, and a discussion of the the currency that they have, and and sort of the potential or the lack of potential, and certainly the the run up around it. So what does the company itself do? Yeah, sure. I find Ripple fascinating for many different reasons and and have written about it uh, many times and I've known the CEOs, you know, over uh, the different, you know, Chris uh, Larson was there, now it's Brad Garlinghouse. And so what they did several 7 years ago, they they realized that they could make the corresponding correspondent banking system more efficient if they introduced a digital currency into the equation. Uh, that digital currency was XRP, and I believe it was a predecessor company to Ripple. They they created a hundred billion of these XRP, and the purpose uh, at the outset was to use XRP as a bridge. So if you had, say, a, diff- a difficult currency in, in an emerging market like the Bolivian dollar, and you needed to change, you wanted to change it into Thai baht. You know that's not a very liquid market. So what their idea was, okay, let's provide this pool of liquidity in, in the XRP currency so that the you can change those Bolivian dollars into XRP. And then somebody over in Thailand who can then change that XRP into the bot. And so that, that's a pretty elegant solution to these illiquid currency pairs. Whether you, know, you need that for a market like the US dollar to the euro is, a, is another question. So they got going on that and, and started to sign banks up around the world and other financial institutions to, to do exactly that. They got market makers to you know be willing to sit in the middle uh, and, and hold that XRP so that the fiat currency could trade in and then out. And they, they started working with exchanges to list XRP so that uh, people could get you know access to it in, in those markets. We found interesting was you know it's now seven years, five years you know into it, so that's a long time uh, to be establishing a business model, and we wanted to sort of 
take a, you know, check in and say, okay, who is at this point actually doing this in the, in the world? Uh, who's, they, they announce a lot of partnerships, but what we found is that they don't have many uh, projects that are in the real world. They have a lot of banks and money service companies in tests internally, but uh, in terms of, of people in the real world today, using XRP for this stated function, you know, we, we've only found one. It's a Mexican uh, U.S. company that is using XRP to uh, help with remittance payments between the U.S. and Mexico. So that's sort of where we were coming from. And I worked with this uh, story with my great colleague, Ed Robinson, who's in London. And, you know, between us, we, we know a lot of people at banks and people in the payment industry. So, we went out to talk to them and, and gauge whether, so just to take a step back in the correspondent banking system, this is a, a trillion dollar business for Wall Street. Um, it's It makes them a lot of money and they've, they put a lot of resources into having currency desks all around the world and having uh, bank accounts with local currencies in them all around the world. So when their large corporate customers need to, you know, let's say it's a it's a U.S. company and they need to pay suppliers in Japan, they go to say Citigroup and say, okay, please, you know, get get our dollars and change them into yen and pay our suppliers in Tokyo. And the the banks have been doing that for decades for the largest corporations in the world. So the question then is, does XRP and, and Ripple have a chance in that market? And it's an ongoing question, but at this point, what we found by talking to executives at some of those largest banks that really have a lock on the correspondent banking market was they, they don't want to get involved with a digital currency. They, they have a lot of concerns about it, and maybe they you know don't understand it. And then on top of that, they would have to convince these commercial clients of theirs that you know we're gonna we're gonna do something new here. Don't worry, and it, it's got a digital currency in the middle of it, and you know this currency goes up and down. And I think so. What we found through our reporting was for those reasons and, and some others, it doesn't seem to us that that these large banks are going to just sort of let Ripple take over this market if you know to to be blunt about it wall street doesn't let you know people just come in and take over their markets it's a they're fiercely competitive and there's a lot of money and at stake here so that that's sort of where we came out on one part of the story and i think what happened through ripple's evolution is they know this as well and this is not something that was new to them by any means so as they've been working with these bank partners like Santander and BBVA and, and some other folks around the world, I think the banks started to tell them, we like your technology. Uh, this is great. You know, you've created a, a really good, fast and accurate network, but let's just, let's just use your ledger to connect me and my bank to a bank in, say, you know, Japan again, so that we can just move dollars to yen over your network. We, we like that part of your business. We just don't want XRP to be in the middle. And so they, I think they're having more success with that in, in terms of the banking sector. 
then maybe with XRP being taken up as the new kind of global reserve currency that would re- be replacing the dollar. So hopefully, does that does that make sense? Sort of yeah, the overview? Well, so you're basically, as I understand, they started with this XRP thing, which was, I mean, it's kind of like, in some ways, sort of like Tether, which we'll get to, which where you have this intermediary currency that can be seamlessly transmuted between different currencies. They tried to do that. They tried to do it as a partnership with banks and work closely with banks. And they moved away from that eventually. Like the, the, the currency stayed in circulation. The ideas were still there. Maybe they were still working on it some, some of the engineering. But they shifted their focus, they shifted their focus to this thing, RippleNet, which is what you're talking about, this network of banks and financial institutions. It's, it's like a trust network. It probably has some of the ideas of XRP because when I report on XRP, what I remember is what's cool about it is it's it's sort of so. I mean, people will 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 criticize the idea of a, of a private blockchain all they want, but what's cool about a private blockchain is that you can have environments where there is a like semi semi uh, low trust, right? Like you know, if you you could trust, you could say that I trust you know these three other banks and I'm willing to work with them, and you can build automated systems of that trust and you you you're not necessarily saying I trust everybody in the network whereas with with bitcoin and, and ethereum these are zero trust systems so you ha- so I think I thought of XRP if I remember it correctly is it's like a low trust or a medium trust protocol but I guess it this is this has all been shifted to RippleNet all the focus I believe you're right yeah they have nodes on their network it's a little murky to me still about how that network is involved with you know XRP and whether if you or I wanted to build Sorry, a, RippleNet a, now. No, RippleNet is just the is just the bank to bank transactions. Mm-hmm. They, they call it the payment rails. But I think the XRP transfer uh, you know is is on a blockchain like you mentioned, and so there there are uh, nodes that make up that blockchain that uh, that serve as you know validators of transactions. It's still an open question to me what, how that you know. If you or I wanted to be a part of that network, if that if that's possible, because I believe uh, Ripple has the ability to sort of choose who is on its network for that purpose, and then RippleNet is is the you know back to the banks and, and other financial companies saying to them, let's just use this network that you've created and, and connect. Let, let's get everybody in the same network. So we're sort of sharing this ledger and that would make moving fiat currencies faster and cheaper and, and more secure. The octopus, a sea creature known for its intelligence and flexibility. Octopus deploy a friendly deployment automation tool for deploying applications like .NET apps, Java apps, and more. Ask any developer, and they'll tell you that it's never fun pushing code at 5 p.m. on a Friday and then crossing your fingers hoping for the best. We've all been there. We've all done that. And that's where Octopus Deploy comes into the picture. Octopus Deploy is a friendly deployment automation tool taking over where your build or CI server ends. Use Octopus to promote releases on-prem or to the cloud. Octopus integrates with your existing build pipeline, TFS and VSTS, 
Bamboo, Team City, and Jenkins. It integrates with AWS, Azure, and on-prem environments. You can reliably and repeatedly deploy your .NET and Java apps and more. If you can package it, Octopus can deploy it. It's quick and easy to install, and you can just go to octopus.com to trial Octopus free for 45 days. That's octopus.com, O-C-T-O-P-U-S.com. And let's take a step back. So money that flows through the traditional banking system is quite slow. I mean, anybody who's done a, a bank transfer probably is aware of that. So why is that? In the, in the classical sense, and since you've got so much experience in this sector, explain why it is a slow process to get money through the traditional banking system. So think of it as, as each bank has its own ledger, and, and those ledgers need to be reconciled. And so a lot of times it's, it's maybe manual work where money is moving internationally from one country to another and uh, the banks involved might not have a presence in that country so they need to have a partnership with a bank that is in that country so now you've got an additional ledger involved and the the it's you know it feels like it's a time consuming process where the, these numbers have to be checked and that that can take days or weeks sometimes it's not unlike when you write a check and it takes you know several days to clear and actually hit your bank account that's because your bank you know needs to check with the bank that it's coming from that the money is there and these are you know these take time and they're prone to errors now if you think of those individual ledgers and then you say wait let's let's have one ledger where everybody's a party to it and those transactions can be verified and move in a much more timely fashion that's that's the breakthrough here so so yeah that that's basically what we're talking about mm-hmm. and to return to this xrp discussion part i think part of what spurred you to write your most recent article about ripple or sorry well xrp this currency associated with ripple the company is that the currency shot up tremendously it, i think it was uh early, in early january it early january 2018 it shot up just tremendously and kind of for no reason uh, probably had something to do with the fact that this everybody was foaming at the mouth and people were reading about what are the currencies i can or should invest in and what are the ones where i can get massive leverage for a thousand dollars or and they're looking at the, the the market caps and they're they're just saying, okay, which market caps are not at 200 billion yet? I just want to put the money into those ones because <laughs> they're going to go up to 200 billion for yeah. whatever reason. And maybe there was some pumping and dumping behind that because, you know, you wouldn't necessarily have to be Ripple the company to do the pumping and dumping. You could be somebody in a Telegram chat room and you could say, hey, you know, XRP is like the... It's like the, you know, if you took if you took Unix and then you made, you know, Mac OS out of it, you made the the more presentable, more consumer friendly, the next generation of the primitive technology that is not accessible to the big shiny corporation and you made it accessible to the banks and the shiny corporations, that's XRP. Like that's that is the narrative that I've heard from people is like this is going to be the path 
to the shiny, glossy, multi-billion dollar banks getting into cryptocurrency. But there's no reason for that narrative to actually exist other than the fact that that was sort of what Ripple was trying to do with XRP in the past, but like not anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. And I, I think it, they're, the price must have had an, an effect here because when everybody was you know getting into this last year towards the end of the year and you're, you're watching Bitcoin go from five thousand dollars to ten thousand to twenty thousand and ether doing you know similar big gains then you see oh xrp it's the third largest crypto by by market share market cap and oh my gosh it's you know 20 cents so yeah let me let me get some of that and i, I think you know it's a lot easier for people to get in on something when it's at 20 cents than at fifteen thousand. obviously you can buy you know tiny shares of bitcoin but i think you know that that psychological sort of price point must have had an effect here, and I think the company, you know, itself, Ripple has has been promoting XRP really strongly for the last year, and they have announcements, you know, about new tests that they're they're conducting uh, with, like, say, MoneyGram, which is a, a big money you know transfer business. Like, I think it's only sec- it's second to Western Union. Don't the thing that I wanted to try to make clear to people was that these are pilots and this is not real world. It's it's not like it's nothing, but I, I would be cautious if, if I'm, if you're investing and if you think that this is now going to be, you know, if, if it's, if this is a real world use for XRP, it might be in the future and that's fine for investing. I just want to try to make it clear to people that this is the state we're in right now. MoneyGram is, is using, you know, XRP and tests for its own transfers internally in, in their back office operations and and might in the future, if it works for them internally, they might start using XRP to move money around the world. But that's that's from the company itself and that's the state that it's in. So you compare that to the kind of people on Twitter and, and other social media and you know the the chat rooms that you're talking about, and it's like XRP has already replaced the US dollar. So, I mean, it's, I just, people need, they, they can invest however they want, but I want to be at least somebody who gets information out there that is, is you know, well-sourced and accurate. And so, so that people can make decisions based on that and maybe not on, on what they hear on Twitter or, you know, something that's, that's misleading. In order for XRP to be successful, would it have to have a lot less volatility? Like, would it have to be a very, would it almost have to be a stable coin or is that a misunderstanding of their technology? I asked that question, didn't make it into the story, but I asked the CEO, Brad Garlinghouse, about that. I said, why not peg it to the dollar? And I think the the answer there is that that's expensive and and difficult to do and, and you need to hedge and or you need to have like a dollar reserve account. And I think so the, one of the things that XRP provides is that it's it's really cheap and it's it's fast. And if you start sort of laying on- In these, terms of transfer fees you're talking about. Yeah, transfer fees. And, and so the margin for using it is really good, but there is only so much margin. And if you start adding on things to make it less volatile, maybe you're hedging with derivatives or something mm-hmm. like that, you know, there's, there's a cost to that. So it's sort of like, you know, you got to weigh the, the the costs and the benefit of doing something to, to make it less volatile. 
Another thing that I personally don't quite still understand is why XRP is, is available on the public market when its use is for banks and financial institutions in these middlemen. I'm all for them having access to it and buying it, but I'm, I'm a little concerned that retail investors and other people who might not be as sophisticated are, are getting into it. And that's a question I think that people need to think about. XRP, as far as I know, has not ever been pitched as a currency to go buy things with. It's always you know, in this money movement system that's global. So why is it listed on exchanges uh, you know I, I just I still haven't really gotten a satisfactory answer to that question but you know I might be that might be something that I just don't understand yet is it the same thing that filecoin would say like average user is not going to want to use filecoin you're going to want to use some client or something that abstracts away filecoin and IPFS but we want to make it accessible to people just basically as an ICO where you have access to investing in that protocol was the, i mean did you ask brad garlinghouse the the ceo about that about you know why is this available to public people i did and he said that they aren't responsible for that that they don't control all of the xrp in circulation oh you know so so if somebody bought it if if a bank bought it during the presale or whatever however they ico'd or whatever the bank could could then release it to a exchange Yes, a secondary market started to develop. And I think what happened over the years was, you know, I think Ripple did did exactly that. They they sold XRP or they gave XRP to some of their partners so that they had it, of course, because they needed it for their system to work. And that doesn't mean that that, that financial institution or, or whatever had to hold that XRP. I think they started, you know, could they could sell it in the secondary market. And then eventually when crypto exchanges became more, you know, prevalent and, and they started getting listed there. Because remember, seven years ago, I'm not sure there were many crypto exchanges out there. That's that's a rather, you know, that's the last few years or so. I mean, there, there always have been, but there's a lot more of them now, I guess is my point. And so at this point, X, Ripple does control the vast majority of XRP. I believe they control 61 billion and 55 billion of those are locked up in escrow, which they did to try to soothe fears that there would be some huge XRP dump, you know, so they've, they've locked that up and can only release a certain amount per month uh, into the public markets. So that's just my, you know, so my concern is that it's sort of like, you know, everyday folks, it's, it's hard to ha- open up a derivatives account, you know, that's supposed to be sort of like for sophisticated investors with a certain amount of money in their, in their brokerage account. And I feel like with cryptocurrencies, we, we should be thinking the same way when, you know, something that's intended for the financial system and internally, you know, maybe that's not the best thing to have out for people to be able to buy and sell. You know, that doesn't make me popular. I just think that, that we have rules in all these other financial markets about, you know, who can participate in some of the more sophisticated parts of the derivatives or the, the bond market, for example. So I don't feel like this is this is that different. So they're continuing to work on XRP. They're continuing to do these experiments. Do you have a sense for where that project is going? And I mean, Ripple, so Ripple, the companies, they're working on RippleNet. They're working on XRP. Can you take me inside the Ripple company and explain what their product roadmap looks like? Or, you know, give me as best a sense from your talking to the CEO as you can. 
Yeah, I, I wouldn't presume to speak for them, but I think what I think where they're, I don't think they disagree with. They seem to be having success with money transfer businesses more than banks. So MoneyGram and, and a few others who you know maybe in remittances. Uh, that's a huge market where people are sending small amounts of money to Africa or India or Mexico. You know, back to their families, that sort of thing. And I think the the relative cheapness of XRP and the speed make that a good fit. Uh, so I wouldn't be surprised if in, few, in a few years, you know, XRP did have a toehold there and that was something that was gaining in popularity. Whether it's going to be the, bar, the large banks, you know, that's at this point still uh, doesn't look that way. They, they do have a deal on the RippleNet part of their business that we've been speaking about with a bank in Sweden, and they're, they're using it to move uh, Swedish kroner into dollars uh, between you know the US and Sweden. And I, I think they might have done $100 billion of transfers last year mm. in that. So you know that's, that's happening. Again, that doesn't use XRP, but that's Ripple technology being used and sort of integrated into, that, into the financial world. So I think they're going to try to build that business and, and try to get partners. And they have great funding in the, the sense that XRP is is valuable. You know, this is, I haven't checked the price lately, but when we wrote our story, that XRP that they held uh, totaled something like $86 billion. So that's a nice war chest to have for a company. You know, I'm not saying you could liquidate that and get $86 billion, uh, but, you know, I think XRP as a currency is is a very interesting funding mechanism for Ripple, the company. Yeah. Even if it's just a belief that Ripple, the company, has been working for seven years to figure out the banking system and to figure out ideas for how cryptocurrency-like systems could accelerate the banking system. Even if it's just a bet on the team and the knowledge they've accumulated and the mistakes they've made, that's not necessarily an irrational valuation. No, I, I agree. And when you talk about investing, you're always looking towards the future. You know, you're you're always saying, "All right, I need to get in now for the future gains," or maybe those gains are being priced in by people getting into the market now. You know, you, stocks sell off uh, or or get bought up based on what the company says is going to happen. You know, in, in next quarter and the quarter after. So along those lines, yeah, it's 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 definitely rational. I think they just have a lot of work to do, and the competition is is fierce here. You know, the, as I've been saying, the banks make a lot of money and invested, uh, you know, decades worth of, of infrastructure and and cost to have uh, operations all around the world, so that they can, act, you know, service their clients who need to move money. One thing we should touch on briefly is the the current system is swift. Yes, it goes back to the seventies. You know, nobody likes it. You know, it's really hard to find somebody who says it's great, but it is the current system. And it's, it's a messaging system that banks used when they need to send, you know, they, they message the, you know, the messages go around and, and everything needs to be verified. And then the banks actually send the money. Uh, that's, that's kind of the, the, the steps in the process. So I think Ripple has definitely gotten Swift's attention and they are now working on vastly speeding up their own network and making it much more resemble the way that Ripple Net works. And wow. so they have 
the, the thing is, they, they there is something like eleven thousand financial institutions already in the SWIFT network and using it every day to send. You know, I think we said it was it's seventy six billion dollars a day moves in this market around the world. So that's the incumbent, and they have quite a home field advantage. If if SWIFT can listen to the banks and upgrade and, and make itself more like what Ripple is offering. I think, you know, that's going to be another tough hurdle in Ripple's hopes of, you know, kind of modernizing and becoming a big player in that market. Mm -hmm. Okay, just to close off on Ripple, the bottom line from your article, Ripple wants to change how banks move money around the world, but that may or may not have anything to do with XRP. And maybe the market is confused about that. Maybe not. Anything else we didn't touch on about Ripple? No, I think we covered it. It's just, yeah, the takeaway is, you know, hopefully there, there's enough information out there to to be informed about how things are, are going. And it, it's important that an independent press, you know, does stories like this so that you can get a, a different perspective than from the company or from people who own it or own XRP already and, and want to see it go up by other people getting in. Mm -hmm. Okay. Speaking of the importance of the press, I think writing about Tether is pretty important. Tether is this purported stable coin, and this is something that you wrote a piece about yesterday. Explain what Tether is, what is problematic about Tether? Yeah, like you said, so a stablecoin uh, is a digital currency that unlike Bitcoin or XRP or Ether, it would not fluctuate. It would not have any volatility. And the way you achieve that in, the ter in, the, in regards to Tether is they say that what every Tether that is created is backed by a US dollar that they've received and that they hold in a bank account. So... If the demand for Tether is, say, $20 million, that means that they've received $20 million and put it in reserve in their account, and then they create $20 million new Tether for the, the, the company or the person who, who wanted that amount. That's in theory, it's great. I think it. I think it's. It's in theory works. Uh, it's, it seems like you know that should, that would keep it from fluctuating because why would it? Why wouldn't it just move in, in lockstep with how the dollar moves? The concern is that Tether, the company, has not uh, convinced the, the broader market that, they, that it actually has that money in reserve. So at, at this point, I believe $2.3 billion worth of Tether have been created uh, and are out in the, the market. That means they should have $2.3 billion sitting in the bank account. They haven't been able to prove that sufficiently to people. When I've written about them, they say, yes, it's there, but they were going through an audit process, but they just severed that agreement with the auditor. And I think that kind of raised a red flag with people. And it also, the backdrop here is Tether is very closely related to one of the biggest exchanges in the world, Bitfinex. They have the same CEO and they share executives. And Bitfinex lost its access to, to U.S. customers last year when Wells Fargo ended its correspondent banking relationship with them. And they lost some banks that they also had, I believe, in, in Hong, uh, Taiwan. It might be Hong Kong. I can't remember. And so for 
a company like like Tether and Bitfinex to to not have banking relationships is is a concern because how how are people moving money in and out there if there's no bank? And since the last year, they they have refused to to tell us you know that they are using new banks, and I, th- I think all of that was uh, led to some stories uh, late last year, first in the New York Times, and then I wrote a story in early December about it, just sort of raising these questions and trying to get the companies to talk to us and tell us what was going on. So it turns out, it was a day after my story ran in December, the CFTC sent subpoenas to Bitfinex and to Tether with the intent of trying to get to the bottom of this. And that's the story I reported on yesterday. It appears that, you know, that's really the only way that we're going to be able to get to the bottom of this. I don't know if you remember this story, but there is a company called Full Tilt Poker. Actually, well, it still exists. But back when I played poker, I I just remember this. Full Tilt Poker, people would put their money in and you would expect, okay, I, you know, transfer $30 to Full Tilt Poker. I've got $30 in my Full Tilt poker bank account or my full tilt poker account and i can go and play at tables and gamble with people for that thirty dollars what happened was full tilt poker decided well we've got 800 million dollars in player account balances and we've had at least 500 million dollars in bank account balances for the last 10 years we can take out three hundred million dollars and play with it. Like they, their employees, right? Their employees took out the three hundred million dollars and just like distributed it amongst themselves and played with themselves and took it off the table essentially because they figured we're always going to have. I mean, this is the idea of 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 margin, right? Basically, like they can yeah. they can assume that because people have put so much money into the casino, they're always going to have some amount of money that they can just take out and do whatever they want with. And to some extent, that's true. I mean, banks do that to a certain extent. The concern is that Tether positioned themselves as saying, we have $1 in our bank account for every one Tether that is uh, that has been issued. But if people believe that enough, if people build up enough trust in that, then Tether might start to say, well, you know, Let's uh, let's take a little bit of this off the table. Maybe let's buy some Bitcoin with it. Let's uh, you know, Bitcoin's as good as dollars. Let's just have that in reserve, and then that starts to be a complicated house of cards. And I think that's what people, you know, such as yourself, have probably realized for a while. Like, okay, if you can really do this, Tether, let's see your technology, or let's see your account balances. Like, what do you have to hide? And from yeah. Tether's actions, it certainly seems like they have a lot to hide. Yes. Um, I think you said it very well. I don't know this for a fact, but I would imagine that the beginnings of the company, you know, they, they were receiving money. And then my suspicion is that at some point they, you know, the market believed them and would, would value a Tether at $1. So I think it's possible that they said, well, let's let's print some tether and go out and get dollars for it or you know more like bitcoin and and the, the concern is that tether is is printing tethers with nothing no dollars backing them and going to exchanges like bitfinex and using that value to to buy bitcoin and so while there's been a great retail demand and institutional demand for bitcoin over the last you know 
several years, there could also be this maybe phantom demand that, that you can tie back to Tether. When you look at the numbers, that they're quite staggering. When I wrote about this in December, they claim to have 820-some million in a bank account. That number is now $2.3 billion. So from the time they got the subpoenas on December 6th to you know today or yesterday, they have put out into the market $1.3 billion I think it's yeah, 1.3 billion new tether. That should be a major concern for people when you know they have not been willing to to just publicly verify or, or, or bring in a, an accountant or a, an auditing firm to just say, yeah, this is this is real. Because another way to think about it, think of what you could do with 2.3 billion dollars in a bank account. That's money, and you can turn that money into more money. You, you know, like you were saying about with margin, they, they would want to be careful about you know, how much they always had in reserve, but, you know, this is a a staple of finances. You, you, you have a certain amount that you always need, you know, but you can loan out the rest or you can go into the repo market with the rest and sort of, there are many, many different companies and industries who need cash on an overnight basis. And you would think, you know, if they were smart, they could sort of work that into their business plan. So there's just, so many red flags here. It's just, I think it's going to be fascinating to see how it all unfolds. Your company needs to build a new app, but you don't have the spare engineering resources. There are some technical people in your company who have time to build apps, but they're not engineers. They don't know JavaScript or iOS or Android, and that's where OutSystems comes in. OutSystems is a platform for building low-code apps. As an enterprise grows, it needs more and more apps to support different types of customers and internal employee use cases. Do you need to build an app for inventory management? Does your bank need a simple mobile app for mobile banking transactions? Do you need an app for visualizing your customer data? OutSystems has everything that you need to build, release, and update your apps without needing an expert engineer. And if you are an engineer, you will be massively productive with OutSystems. Find out how to get started with low-code apps today at OutSystems.com SEDaily. There are videos showing how to use the OutSystems development platform and testimonials from enterprises like FICO, Mercedes-Benz, and Safeway. And I love to see new people exposed to software engineering. That's exactly what OutSystems does. OutSystems enables you to quickly build web and mobile applications, whether you are an engineer or not. Check out how to build low-code apps by going to OutSystems.com slash SEDaily. Thank you to OutSystems for being a new sponsor of Software Engineering Daily, and you're building something that's really cool and very much needed in the world. So thank you, OutSystems. I think what I read was that the way that people are using Tether is basically similar to what we were talking about with Ripple, like except but for cryptocurrencies. So the idea is it is hard to transfer Bitcoin into Gollum currency or whatever. And so people, instead of going from Bitcoin to dollars to Gollum currency, you would go from Bitcoin to Tether 
to Gollum currency. And for some reason, that is more liquid, it's faster, is and, and it's, it's so much faster that this is perhaps contributing to the fast-moving markets, and then so the markets would just really slow down because of, of, of a loss of tether. Do we, do we have any idea how much liquidity or what percentage of, of the cryptocurrency market liquidity makes its way through tether on a given day? I don't know of that. Uh, that would be great to know. I think that the difficulty there is that it's offered on a lot of different exchanges around the world, and you'd somehow have to aggregate all of that and understand the volume. So, again, in theory, this is this is a thing that I think is is good for the market. It's just it seems not that hard to to come out and say yes. You know, here are the numbers. Here are the books. We want you to have confidence in us. When I was dealing with that, with Tether on the last story I did in December, they just refu- they wanted me to sign a non-disclosure agreement, and then they they said they would tell me who their banks were, and you know it's so of course we didn't do that, but I don't understand that they said you know that the that they have privacy agreements and that they don't want to expose these banks to public scrutiny, um, but when you're a big part of a market and people have confidence in you, you need to, you know, you need to earn that trust in my opinion. And I, I feel like it wouldn't take a lot for Tether uh, to, to sort of show the world that it is in fact, you know, on the up and up. There's this Twitter account. You probably, I think you've seen it. I think, I think I've seen you retweet it or something. Uh, Bitfinexed or what is it? Bit. Yeah. It's like this anonymous Twitter account and it just tweets all of this stuff that's basically like this is why Tether is bad or or very skeptical or this is why Bitfinex is is skeptical. Do you have any idea who that person is or cuz I it remind it kind of reminds me of Zero Hedge is you know Zero <laughs> Hedge the this like semi Tyler Durden, right? Yeah, <laughs> yes, <of course>. exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's sort of like a Zero Hedge of cryptocurrency. They just kind of talk about the conspiracy theories and the maybe the the bearish cases on different aspects of cryptocurrency. Yes, I I am very familiar with Bitfinex. Yeah. I follow him uh, or her or them, uh, but I don't don't know the identity. I've asked, but that person is concerned about his safety and, and other things, you know, and that's that's a sort of a sad commentary um, right now about this about some of the elements of this new market. What I found, so so I don't know who the, this person is, but I have found the information that, that I'm just going to say he, for the ease of it, that he puts out has been really very accurate. A lot of the documents that he posts are, are real and I've been able to verify them independently. So I wish I could get to the bottom of him and, and one, and just what is your motivation here? Cause it's amazing how much effort he puts into it. I think he, he has done the market a service by keeping uh, attention on this and, as a, like in my position as a reporter, I'm forced to pay attention to him because it keeps coming and it's I, I can't look away. So for that, you know, I think we owe him some thanks. And I think, you know, it, 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 he helped lead to the New York Times story and a lot of other stories in, in other publications. And it'll be very interesting to see if, if all of his work is vindicated someday. What do you think about his perspective on Litecoin, which was... This was a currency that was started by Charlie Lee, who was one of the early employees at Coinbase. But he's Litecoin was started before he joined Coinbase, I believe, and it's you know it was a, a currency that he started. And then recently, 
in the huge cryptocurrency run up, Litecoin turned into you know multi billion dollar currency, just like all the other any other crap coin. But this was this is a little bit more legitimate coin. I mean, it's a coin you can actually buy it on Coinbase. But he sold all of his holdings, and he got a lot of criticism from the community. And I, I mean, I I thought it was totally fine. I was like, okay, whatever. I mean, people sell, sell their startups all the time. They sell all their equity in a startup. That doesn't mean that they've lost faith in the startup. But he got so much criticism. I guess maybe the optics were bad, but Bitfinexed really tore into him and really criticized him. So I actually made suggestions that perhaps there was some insider trading involved with perhaps Coinbase, which I thought was like pretty brazen to say. Yeah, what's what's fascinating about that is any sort of allegations of insider trading right now have to be policed by the those exchanges and those participants because, you know, let's not forget, this isn't regulated yet by the SEC. And they don't, you know, I think there's this gray area where some coins are, are going to be deemed securities and others are not. But at this point, you know, I don't know that trade, insider trading, yeah, it's bad, but is it illegal? I, I don't know. I don't think so. You know, you, you raise a big point. If somebody at Coinbase knows that they're going to be listing a new coin and, and they go out ahead of that and buy a whole bunch of it, and then when that news comes out, you know, the coin goes way up. Yeah, you, you know, and I think there is an internal investigation at Coinbase about that right now, uh, whether employees were engaged in that. So I'm not going to opine on Charlie Lee. You know, I'll let the, those folks speak for yeah. themselves and Bitfinex can certainly speak for himself. I, I agree with your point that you should be like, you know, startups do get sold yeah. all the time. Maybe what he could have done was say, I'm going to sell my stake and I'm going to do it every week for the next six weeks. If, if it, maybe a little more transparency would have not unleashed uh, the anger that he received. I don't know, because I think I don't remember, but did he just sort of tell everybody, okay, I just sold? <laughs> I think and, that was it. I think it was, was literally it. a tweet yeah. that was like, I just sold all of my holdings. I'm just going to kind of focus on the technology now. And <laughs> yeah. Like, here's the bag. You guys exactly. hold it. <laughs> so, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, I think it's fascinating to see these folks sort of like that are, you know, by all intents and purposes, they're brilliant, you know, and they're smart and they're, they work really hard and they're on the cutting edge here. And then they sort of run into this financial world where, you know, there's a certain type of behavior expected of folks. And, and you know, that's a really interesting dynamic to me about how the crypto world and the Wall Street world are going to get along, you know, and how, how they're going to teach each other about the different aspects of their of what they all know. Mm. Tell me more about that. Like, what do you think is going to happen? Or what's, you know, given your, the, the cross-section of your banking background and your current aggressive reporting on the, on the cryptocurrency world, do you have any interesting predictions about where this is going? Uh, a good example is the ICO kind of craze. And I think you've got a whole group of folks who realized that this was a great funding mechanism and that there was a lot of money in digital currencies. So, Let's tap into that money. But they didn't have an appreciation a lot of times for the fact that it's really, it seems like you're raising capital from a, from a broad marketplace. And there, you know, the SEC exists to police that. And so thinking that you can just come in 
and and say to your investors before the ICO, no, this isn't a security. This is you know, this is just our utility token, and we hope to raise two hundred million dollars for this project that we will then build. That I think they need better lawyers. <laughs> they need people to advise them on on the fact that that looks almost exactly like an IPO and. You know, there are strict rules about IPOs and about disclosure and about making sure investors are informed and about who can sell, you know, into the IPO. And that's, and all of those things are, are real and, and serious and people go to jail for violating those rules. So, you know, that, that's a pretty bright example to me of these two worlds kind of mashing together. On the flip side, you know, I think Wall Street's sort of the way that it turned its nose up on to Bitcoin for so many years and then finally had this big re- reversal when it started <laughs> going through the roof is, is kind of ridiculous. You know, like it was evil incarnate and then banks couldn't, you know, get a trading desk together fast enough. So, you know, there are biases on, on each side here. And the really interesting folks that I find are the ones who have a good foot planted in each world. The, those are the people that I find really helpful to to sort of guide me through how this market is is evolving right before our eyes. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, maybe I'll have to get some pointers to to people I should be talking to as well. Okay. Well, I, I know we're, we're you know, we've gone over basically, but um, what's next for Tether? Like, what is the next step in the investigation? That is a great question, and that's what I'm going to be trying to find out. It's very difficult to get information on ongoing investigations. So that's a challenge for me and and for other reporters that cover this beat. So the subpoena process, basically what they do is they they issue subpoenas to, to these companies and say, we want to know what you're doing. You know, we, we need to talk to you. And a lot of times um, the regulators won't know what they're doing and they'll, they'll broadly subpoena a firm or a company and come in and start talking to people. And then, and then based on that information, then they start building a roadmap and they might issue more subpoenas to, to talk to somebody that they've just learned about. So it's a step-by-step process. Another question. So obviously they would want to get to the bank accounts, right? They, if, if you were Tether, you would want to have, you know, all of your bank balance sheets ready for them and open on the table when they walk in and, and try to clear this up. You know, that's the thing we've been kind of speaking about is this doesn't seem that difficult to, to resolve. If the money's there, just prove it, you know? So it might be a short, short investigation and, and everything might be okay. I'm not saying it's not. It's just that the company is acting in ways that make you have, have these concerns. So the, the subpoena process will continue like that. I think the CFTC is getting a lot more savvy about these uh, investigations. I think uh, most of the U.S. regulatory agencies are getting more sophisticated and understanding that actually a blockchain is, is a great regulatory tool because it has a, a, a trail of every transaction that occurs. You know, When you want to launder money uh, in, in cash, you can give somebody a suitcase and it put, they put it in the trunk of their car and it's gone. On a blockchain, you're going to have a record of that. So I think they're, they're understanding that aspect to it and, and realizing that it's in some ways it can make their job easier. Just a, a broad one more thing on subpoenas, the CFTC is a civil, they, they issue civil subpoenas and bring civil cases. 
they, they do have the option of, of going to the Justice Department and the FBI and saying, we think, you know, there's enough here to for you guys to start a criminal proceeding. So that's a possibility. And that's happened in in other areas of, of market manipulation and, and cases that I, I've covered. So I wouldn't tell anybody to expect this to, you know, it's not a fast process. The, 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 they're thorough and, and it, it takes time, but that's, that's sort of how it's going to play out. Whether Tether or, and or Bitfinex come out and publicly say anything, I don't know. It's pretty rare for, for companies that are being investigated. They, they don't really want to make public comments about that. And certainly with Tether and Bitfinex, they, they are they barely make public comments to begin with. So I think this is going to be a story that plays out in the press uh, for, for the foreseeable future. Not to open a, a can of worms, but I thought of one more thing I want to ask you about, which is the Chinese ICO. So for example, Tron, you must have seen Tron, right? Oh man. So when you were talking about this earlier, I, I was thinking of that exactly because I... One day I just looked at the coin market cap and just at the top 10, I'm like, I didn't recognize like three or four. And there's this one is Tron. I'm like, what the hell is this? It's got a, an enormous market cap. I don't think it even really exists, you know? But- so Tron, when I was in Austin and the night, like after my friend showed me those 82X gains on his Rye blocks where he had just put in some money yeah. and got 82X gains, I was like, what the heck is going on here? Do I Do I need to get into this? Like... You know, just and so I and so I was like, okay, I'm gonna look at these. I'm just gonna take a look. I haven't actually read any of these white papers for these crap coins. Maybe maybe one of these is actually good. So I read a white paper for the Tron one because it was the sixth highest <laughs> cryptocurrency. Reddit was talking about it, so I said, you know, what the hell? Yeah. I'll try to vet this thing myself. Maybe I'm a crypto expert. Maybe I can start a crypto hedge fund. So I read the white paper and it and it starts out, it's really romantic and compelling. It's written by someone from China. They're talking about decentralization. They want to get out from under the Great Firewall. They want to decentralize social networks and cloud providers. And, you know, I'm getting into it. It's like four in the morning. I'm on three hours of sleep. <laughs> you know, I've got the, the image of my friend's 82X gains on Ryblox just, uh, you know, seared into my imagination. And I'm getting swept up into this cyberpunk narrative of tron by the way the tron white paper you could find at tron.network that's their website i'm looking at the team the engineering is uh, like the engineering team looks okay like there's somebody who was at 10 cent and then i i read a little bit further and i'm getting into the technical weeds and i'm like wait a second this is not decentralized at all it's not a decentralized blockchain they just they have what they call centralized consensus it's just like a set of servers on like running oh, Kaf- wow. Kafka is like a, it's just a centralized database basically. Like it might as well, it's, it's just like a centralized database. They plan to eventually move to decentralization. And then also they mention off the cuff, Oh, we want to build a VM system. That's better than Docker. And Docker is this like very, you know, open source VM like system. And so it's all just vaporware. And then I read that the Tron white paper was just plagiarized from the IPFS white paper. And, and, you know, at that point, you know, you look at the, it's the sixth highest market cap cryptocurrency. It's like, you don't know whether to laugh or to cry. Yeah, I am totally with you. And that's sort of informing some of, of my coverage and trying to just get at the bottom of some of this stuff, because you're obviously very sophisticated and know this and, and, you know, they had you going for a while. And, you know, that's, 
scammers are always good at that. You know, that's why they get, that's why they scam people. And so it's, it's up to people in the, in this community and in the press that covers it to, you know, hold these, these folks to account and try to get some just basic facts established. So yeah, <laughs> glad you didn't get in. <laughs> I certainly did not. Okay. And so do you have any idea, like, can we regulate the Chinese ICOs or? God, that's another fascinating part of this whole story is, is how do you, how do you regulate a blockchain that's global? That's, you know, pretty much if it's done right, you know, it's, it's immutable and sort of beyond the control of, of governments and corporations. You know, it comes down to whether you can restrict internet access Mm -hmm. or not, you know, how difficult that is, if not impossible. So that being said, yeah, of course it can be regulated and it's going to, I do get the sense that this is really testing regulators uh, relationships with their foreign counterparties, like the, the Japanese regulators and the CFTC and, and the Chinese regulators and the SEC. You know, they all need to be coordinating to an extent that I'm not sure they've ever done before because this market is global and it, we've seen it move quickly when China has, you know, made, put out restrictions on Bitcoin exchanges, for example. You know, that, that really it was just a blip in the, in the radar and things will just move to a, a friendlier country. So, that's going to be a challenge for, for regulators to all get on the same page because, you know, they like, they like their home turf. They, they want to, you know, feel like they are capable of regulating their home markets. And so some American outs, you know, outsider coming in might be seen as, you know, like, Oh, you're belittling us. We don't know. You think we don't know what we're doing. There's no time for that in this sort of world where, you know, this Tron coin can just emerge <laughs> and, and all of a sudden be worth billions of dollars on a plagiarized white paper. I mean, who's left holding the bag there, you know, and that's so unfortunately I think the vast majority of the ICO uh, stuff is, is going to fall into that bucket and, and people are, are going to lose a lot of money. And the only ones I see coming out on top of this are, are the lawyers <laughs> who are just going to have years and years of cases. <laughs> All right, Matt. Well, thanks for giving me so much time. It's been awesome talking to you. I'm sure this will be a good episode. The Dow hack was really popular. And okay. and yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to, you know, to more of your reporting. I'm sure we'll have more to talk about in the future. Yeah. Yeah. I hope so too, Jeff. It's, it's always a pleasure talking to you. If you are building a product for software engineers or you are hiring software engineers, Software Engineering Daily is accepting sponsorships for 2018. Send me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com if you're interested. With 23,000 people listening Monday through Friday and the content being fairly selective for a technical listener, Software Engineering Daily is a great way to reach top engineers. And I know that the listeners of Software Engineering Daily are great engineers because I talk to them all the time. I hear from CTOs, CEOs, directors of engineering who listen to the show regularly. I also hear about many newer, hungry software engineers who are looking to level up quickly and prove themselves. And to find out more about sponsoring the show, you can send me an email or tell your marketing director to send me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. And if you're a listener to the show, thank you so much for supporting it through your audienceship. 
that is quite enough. But if you're interested in taking your support of the show to the next level, then look at sponsoring the show through your company. So send me an email at jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. Thank you. Wow. 